All right. So we are we are slowly crawling our way to the end of First Thessalonians. Well, we're almost there. Where we just see the finish line. We just, and, and we're gonna get there. And and as we reach towards the end of First Thessalonians, I, I want to spend just a few minutes to, to bring us back to the context of why Paul is writing to the Thessalonian church here. And so what we know from the Thessalonian church, and this is stuff that you know I've covered throughout the series, um, but I just want to bring us to a reminder so that it helps bring context to what we're going to see here at the end. And the Thessalonian church was a church planted by Paul during his second missionary journey. He spent a few weeks there before he was traced out by local Jews. And it's, that seemed to be a common theme wherever city he ends up at. And, but because it was only just a few weeks, Paul left a very young church. It's a, it's a church that was young in his faith. And, and he left a young church alone in a town that, that simply hated the gospel that he taught. It's, it's leaving a leaving a cub out there and being vulnerable to the wolves. And so Paul was worried about them. Paul was worried about the Thessalonians. And, and so he sent Timothy, the disciple Timothy, back to check up on this church. And to Paul's delight, Paul finds out from Timothy that the faith of the Thessalonians remains strong and healthy. And, and this is what caused Paul to write this letter. Now, even though the Thessalonians' faith was indeed healthy, it doesn't mean the Thessalonians didn't face any persecution or oppression. They, they definitely suffered a lot. And this fact was made known back in chapter 2, verse 14, where it tells us that the Thessalonians were being persecuted by their own countrymen, meaning by their own neighbors. And so... Paul knew they were going through tough times. Paul also knew they recently lost loved ones. He spends the end of chapter 4 talking about how to grieve for those who have passed away. He, he also knows they worried. They were, they were worried emotionally, fearing that the day of the Lord has already passed them. And so Paul comforted them, reminding them that the day of the Lord is still yet to come. The Thessalonians, they, they, they still struggle with their faith. And, and the reality of this is, of all this, is that as faithful as the Thessalonians were, you know, and we, we know from the beginning of this letter that the Thessalonians' faith, love, and hope was well known across the regions. As healthy as this church may be, walking faithfully with God in this fallen world is, is hard work. And we know this to be true ourselves, right? Let me ask you, how many of you are worn out from doing good? How many of you are feeling just burnt out? Just, it's just, it's just getting tougher to get through each day faithfully. How many of you just struggle to find rest, to, to find a second to breathe? And even, even in the midst of a pandemic, we still find it very difficult to find peace and quiet for our own souls before God. And how many of you wrestle still with your emotions during this time? Your, your thoughts, and they're just kind of everywhere, and they keep hitting you at rapid pace, and, and they seem un uncontrollable and untamable. The passage that we're going to look at tonight, it, it's, it will, the passage is meant to help center you. Center your heart, center your mind, a way to anchor yourself in God so that you may be encouraged to walk indeed a faithful life, a holy life before God. And the encouragement here and that we want to find our passage in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 and 22, the encouragement here comes in the form of commands, comes in the form of imperatives, in the form of actionable items. Paul here isn't just simply encouraging Thessalonians with like sound theology, which is great. But right now, Paul here is giving, him, giving them instructions. This is how you put this theology into practice. And in verse 16 and 22, we will come across eight imperatives, eight commands that you ought to obey. 
and, and, and we're going to see that these commands will help us center ourselves before God. Help us be able to be faithful before Christ. So let me go ahead and read this passage for us. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 16 to 22. I'm reading from the ESV. This is God's word. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus before you. Do not quench the spirits. Do not despise prophecies. But test everything. Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. And so what I want to do is we see here eight imperatives, eight commands, and I'm going to divide them into two groups. Two groups that will serve as, I'm, as our main point. And the first group is this. It's, it's the first group is to center our hearts, your hearts, to God's will. And it's a focus upon our hearts. And, and we'll see this in verses 16 18. And then the second portion of this, in verses 19 to 22, we'll be focusing upon centering our minds centering our hearts and centering our minds. And when I say hearts and minds, I, I don't mean to separate the two as if they're not connected at all. When scripture talks about our hearts and our minds, our emotions, our thoughts, our will, they're all part of one unit. They, they all can make up our human nature. And so we can't necessarily separate them, but, uh, but because we do understand that emotions and thoughts, they though they're intertwined closely, they're still different terms. And I think it just helps us to think in this way. So the first group that we're going to look upon here is from verse 16 to 18. We have three commands here. And these commands will focus upon how to center your heart on God's will. And so here, at the end of verse 18, we'll begin there. End of verse 18 Paul writes, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And I believe this, the this in the beginning, for this, refers to the previous three commands together as one session. Paul is saying that these commands are God's will for you. And this is the second time that Paul has used God's will explicitly in this epistle. The first time we see this is back in chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul writes, This is the will of God, your sanctification. And, and Paul here, Paul here, he, he's talking about God's will, God's plan for your life. And, and in both cases, both in chapter 4 and here in chapter 5, he is talking about God's will in the sense of his, in the sense of how he wants you to live your life morally. How do you live a moral life? And this is, what, this is what Paul here is talking about. And Paul here says, this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. In other words, apart from Christ, we cannot fulfill God's will. When it's the fact that we are united with Christ. We are one with Christ. That's why we, God's will now matters to us. We enter into the realm of God's will. And when we enter into God's will in Christ, these three commands stand at the center of it. So what does God's will then require of us? In verse, 19, in verse 16 to 18, what we see here is we see three commands. And each one of them comes with a quantifier. Meaning each one of them has a description about the extent to which we are to obey these instructions. Verse 16 says, rejoice always. 17, pray without ceasing. And verse 18, give thanks in all circumstances. Each one of these commands are in the present tense. And so what Paul here is saying is that we must obey these, not just once, but continuously. They must become a habit of our daily lives. And these commands here, these commands here, Paul simply says, he's simply saying that we should be doing this all the time. That Christians, this, this marks what a Christian's life should look like. Everywhere, during any age, doesn't matter how old you are, doesn't matter where you are, every circumstances, we are to obey these commands. 
What this means is that we don't just rejoice when the Lakers win. We rejoice all the time. We don't just pray when the Lakers are losing. We pray when without ceasing. And we give thanks. We give thanks regardless of what happens in our life. In every circumstance. And, and these, these instructions, they're not uncommon to us. We find them in other places of scripture. Right? It's, it's not just for this church. It's for all believers. Right? Romans chapter 12, verse 12 says, Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, it says, Addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always for everything. To God the Father. Philippians chapter 4 verse 4 to 6 says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God. And so these, these commands are clear. I don't think there's anything like hidden or a secret behind these words. They're, they're just simple. They're straightforward. They're to the point. And so what I want to focus upon here now in this section is how do you apply these to your lives today? I want us to take, take note that these commands, they all refer to your heart. They're, they're, they're talking about centering our heart, our attitude before God. It's, and Paul here, he, or he's not saying that we need, a, you know, we need to do this 24-7. Like he's not expecting us to pray nonstop and that we should never take a bathroom break, that we, our mouths must be moving all the time. He, he, he's talking about here an attitude, a, a posture of our heart before God. Oh, and and these, these actions speaks to speaks to what our hearts are filled with. Is your heart filled with joy, with prayer, and with thanksgiving? Let me talk about rejoicing for a moment. Let's take that as, a, as an example. Right? The command to rejoice always. See? And, 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 and the, if you take the command at face value, it, it means you should never encounter a situation where you are not able to rejoice. Uh, and, and let's think for a moment the church of Thessalonica, when they, read, when they read this command, when they read this letter from Paul, what, think about what they must be thinking through. Right? We, we learned that the church, they have lost loved ones. We've learned that they are facing persecutions from their neighbors, their friends. And they're suffering for their faith. And yet Paul says, rejoice always. And what, what this means is that, what this shows us is that there is something supernatural about rejoicing. Something that separates Christians from the rest of the world. And, and Paul, as he's writing um, in to the Thessalonica church, and as he's writing really to any church, he's showing them, he's telling them that as a believer, as a Christian, as a church, we all stand apart from the world. We stand different from the world. He emphasizes that throughout his command, starting in chapter four of this epistle, right, that we are different from others. We are different from the unbelievers. And so when Paul here says to rejoice always, he's talking about a Christian life that's marked by a supernatural joy, a joy that cannot be that cannot be extinguished. Now you can't take a fire hydrant and put it out. And as we read this, I mean, we, we have to realize that and understand that Paul here, he's, I mean, he's, not, he's not saying that Christians should never grieve, they should never cry or shed a tear. I mean, he, he says back in chapter 4, verse, verse 13, that you should grieve. But you should grieve not as, oh, as others do who have no hope. In other words, there is a time to mourn. There is a time to weep. There is a time to cry. There is a time to rejoice. There is a time to give thanks. There is all that. 
Right? And in Romans chapter 12, verse 15, Paul says that we should rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. But I want us to take a moment and just think for a moment, why does Paul write then to rejoice? Why this command in particular? We, we just think about the entirety of scripture. And, and I was thinking through scripture and I, I couldn't really think of a place like this. And if I'm wrong, you can correct me, you can let me know. But does scripture ever command us to just mourn? Like without any context at all? Like does scripture ever say mourn always? To, to cry always? I mean, scripture, right? We, we know about the Psalms. And the Psalms, the Psalms have laments. And they lament about the state of the wickedness of this world. And, and we also have the prophets in the Old Testament, right? And we have Jeremiah, the weeping prophets, who cried over the state, the sinful state of Israel. Even Jesus wept for Lazarus during his death. But, but nowhere in scripture, at least as far as I can tell, tells us in a command form, in an imperative, in, in the form of an instruction to mourn to just mourn. Instead, scripture seems to say that it's okay to mourn, that it's not wrong to mourn because mourning is a part of human life. It's, a, it's, it's, it's our reaction to the, to, the, to the challenges of this world. Pain should indeed cause us to cry. But yet, scripture as Paul writes here, tends to give us a pretty straightforward command to rejoice. To rejoice. I mean, I mean, throughout the New Testament, there's this command to rejoice in our suffering. I mean, and if, if that's the case, and if we want to be well-balanced, how come Scripture never says we should mourn in our celebrations? Scripture commands us to rejoice, to sing, to boast of our weakness, to cling to hope, and why is that? I believe it's because rejoicing is hard. Rejoicing in this fallen world is difficult. Rejoicing in, in the midst of trials is not normal. It's, rejoicing is a spiritual act. To rejoice in the Lord demonstrates that you are not of this world. That you may live in this world, but you're certainly not like the people who live in this world, who are of this world. And then I, I believe this is what Paul here is talking about. And, and what we ultimately get to see here is that the heart of joy, the heart of prayer, the heart of thanksgiving is a demonstration of our faith in God. To rejoice in any circumstance is to look at every circumstance straight in the eye and to say, you may take my earthly comforts, but you may never steal my eternal joy in Christ. What we see here in these commands, right? And remember, commands are actionable items. There are things we can actually do. The fact that this comes in the command form means that to rejoice in the Lord is a choice we can make. It is choosing not to allow grief and turmoil to be the determining factor of your spiritual state. It's to choose to hold on to hope and treasure Christ in the midst of all your trials. And this world around us, the society around us, they tell us all the time that we are who we are. We cannot change. But that goes against the gospel message because the gospel message says in Christ, you are a new creation. And because we are a new creation, our will that used to be in bondage to sin, meaning we are unable to rejoice in the Lord because of sin in Christ it says we are free. And we're free now to make that choice to rejoice in the Lord. The same goes for prayer. Praying demonstrates your security is in the Lord and not in this world. It's an act of faith, depending upon God, trusting in Him completely, even when He doesn't seem to be present. It's to be persistent in prayer. 
to constantly go to God, even when times are harder. The same goes with giving thanks. To be thankful in any circumstance is to remember God's sovereignty. To remember his control over your life. And then even in times when you may be feeling lonely, when you're feeling discontent, when things aren't going away, you're just having a bad day. Are you able to give thanks to the Lord? Thanksgiving is a demonstration of faith saying that you trust in God and that God is working all things for your good. That comes from Romans 8, 28. It's to be thankful in every situation. And so in the midst of your trials, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of this time during COVID-19, when your emotions and thoughts may be running wild, how do you respond? How do you respond? You see, the test of our faith, the test of our faith happens in these small and quick moments, right? It's, it, to do the will of God isn't always this grandiose vision where we're going to go out and convert a whole tribe to Christianity. It, it happens in these small moments. It's the ability to take your uncomfortable feelings and say, I choose to rejoice. I choose to pray. I choose to be thankful for my situation. And at the end of the day, it's, it's, it's not just to, it's not to take every situation and say, I can't, I can't show my tears. It's, you know, again, Paul, Paul says, okay, to cry. He's encouraging you to be here as he is. When he says to rejoice always, to pray about seeing the gift, thanks in all circumstances, he's telling you to be what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. <coughs> and so to choose to center then, and I use that word to choose because I because these are actions. These are things you can do. You can choose to center your heart to the will of God. Is to choose to have faith in God in every circumstance. And the second command here that we'll see, the second set of commands, is to choose to center your mind around God's truth. And what we see here in these next five commands in verse. 19 to 22. And what, what we come across here in verse 19, in verse 19, Paul here writes, do not quench the spirits. Then in verse 20, he says, do not despise prophecies. And, and, and I believe these two are related, right? To, to quench something, to quench something is to extinguish it. It's, and, and when we say to quench the spirit in the New Testament, the spirit is, is often described as a flame, right? a fire. And, and to, so to quench a flame, right? to, to, to put out a flame, it requires an outside force. Right? Those brush fires in, in the hills weeks ago, they don't just disappear. It requires water, it requires sand, it requires work to be done to, to put it out. The implication here, from and the the implication here, do not quench the spirit. Is that the church should not allow any kind of immorality, any kind of sin, to enter in and quench the work of the spirit. And in verse twenty, do not despise prophecies. And the reason why we say this is related is because prophecy is listed as a gift of the spirit. It's it's the work of a spirit. And to despise something is to reject it with contempt. It's not simply just ignoring prophecies to, to simply say, you know, that doesn't apply to me. It's to, it's to outright reject it. To say, I want nothing to do with this. And so here Paul is saying, do not despise, do not reject prophecies in contempt. Let's talk a little bit about prophecy because I, I, that, that's a really controversial term. And, and, and to prophesize just in its most basic form is to proclaim instructions and guidance given by God to the church. So it's, and, and so the modern day prophets, quote unquote, if you want, and, and 
you know, people argue whether or not there are still prophets yet today, but but there are there are places in scripture that talks about prophecy as just simply speaking God's word. And so if you wanted to relate that to today's terms, the, the modern day prophets are just those who proclaim God's word, those who speak God's truth in the form of instruction and guidance to others. And, and we, we, we get a sense of this because in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, um, it talks about prophecy as not just a random verse we pull out, but it's talking about prophecy as words from God that are, that are used to edify and build up the church. And so to prophesize about something is to actually give a good message from the word of God that helps the church grow. And, and whether or not prophecy still exists today, what, what, we, what we all can agree upon is that prophecy still exists during the time of the Thessalonica church. And so let's just, let's just understand this within its own context. What is, Paul's, what is Paul trying to say here? What are you trying to tell the Thessalonians? And, and he doesn't actually give us much context. Paul just, all we see here really is just this command, do not despise prophecies. And, and I don't know, perhaps Thessalonians were maybe a conservative group and they were skeptical about all these different things people were saying. Or maybe the Thessalonians were allowing sin and immorality to, to enter that church and just stop the spirit from working. And, and, and so Paul's saying, stop doing that. Be holy. Whatever the case may be, whatever the case we may think about the spirit and the prophecies, what we do know is that this is God working. This is God working the church. And, and, and at the same time, at the same time, as, as people are hearing the word of God, as people are trying to grow in their faith, Paul here says in verse 21, he says to test everything. To test everything. And so it seems like what's going on here is that the Thessalonians were hearing a lot of different teaching going on in the church. Right, and we keep in mind during this time, the New Testament has been written yet. And so they're here on these teaching. There's new revelation happening as well going as, as the New Testament is being written. And, and they're, they're trying to figure out what is right and what is wrong. And so Paul here is informing them, test everything. Test them. Use discernment in what you're hearing. Examine it. Test every sentence, every word. And and to, to, to test them against the standard of scripture. Paul here, Paul here, he's, he's encouraging Thessalonians not, not just to be skeptical, but to, but to, to, to use discernment in what they're hearing. And so, and so what Paul here is, is getting to is that the Thessalonians, they should not reject every single thing they hear, just reject it outright. But instead, they should use discernment on what they should accept as truth and what they should reject as false. And, and, and this is true for us even today, right? Um, John, 1 John, 1 John chapter 4 gives us this reality that, that today we still face false prophets and false teachers all the time. In First John chapter 4, verse 1, um, John writes to the church, he says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For, from false prophets, for, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. And so false prophets are among us. 1 John chapter 4, verse 2, By this we know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. And so what we get here is that there are indeed false teachers in this world and we all must be wary of them. And so, and so we must then test everything. 
Test everything according to the standard of truth laid out here in God's word to hold everything up in the light of scripture and to see what comes through and what does not. You should be like the Bereans in Acts chapter 17 who held everything that the apostle Paul taught them to the scriptures. You should do the same with me tonight. And is what I'm saying true to scripture? You should do the same when you're reading Christian books, even from the authors you trust. When you're reading blogs, test what they're saying to Scripture because not everyone is infallible. Paul exhorts the Thessalonians to test everything. And as they test everything, Paul here gives the final instructions of what to do after they test everything says here at the end of verse 21, hold fast what is good. Hold fast what is good. And so if the Thessalonians find anything that does indeed match the scripture, Paul says that it is your duty and your responsibility to hold fast to these prophecies that stand true of God's word. And in verse 22, we have the opposite end. To abstain from every form of evil. And, and, and the word evil here is it's a strong term. It's, it's not the normal term for evil. It's a, it's a stronger term. It, it's not just something bad, but this evil is an active evil. It's, it's active and destructive. It seeks to destroy. And believers must abstain from every form this evil and, and that's what false teaching does it seeks to destroy the church and so we must abstain from it to keep it far away from us to, to make sure everything what we do everything that we hold fast to stands true with god's word what we see here is that these actions speak to our minds being disciplined to honor god it's the discipline of our minds to, to be able to filter out what is good and what is bad. To, and in, in, in this kind of world, right, this digital world, when we're constantly being fed information left and right from advertisements to entertainment to political debates to preachers and sermons to lessons and all these things coming into our heads, how disciplined is our mind to be able to not allow the bad things to enter and hold on to the good things. And again, we, we know these commands. We, we know that we should hold on to what is good. We, we know we should put away all that is false. The question is, with these commands, are you doing that? Are you holding fast to what is good? Do you, when you sit through sermons, what, what, do you, what happens afterwards? Do you, do you simply sit through a sermon and think to yourself afterwards, well, that was nice. Glad I heard that today. Or do you actually sit through sermons processing, thinking, digesting the message? To, to, to see what you hear, to, to come to a conclusion whether or not this is true or false. And when you find out it is true, you find out what you're hearing from the preacher is true, do you hold fast to it? Do you hold on to it? Or does it slip out the next morning? Hold fast what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. This is something we must continue to remember to do. It's a commandment that we must obey. Do you truly hold fast to the truth of scripture? Do you truly get rid of every source of evil that may enter into your life? And, and again, when we talk about all this stuff that relates to the mind, to truth, and, and, and how that impacts us, it does, the mind, the heart are connected. Think for a moment, the first three commands that we saw in verse 16 to 18 to rejoice, to pray, to give thanks. And, and guess what? If, you, if your mind does not focus and hold fast to what is true, what is good, do you think you're able to indeed obey these commands to rejoice? 
pray and give thanks? Or, or turn, let's turn this question around. If you truly do believe that God is good, and you believe that God is sovereign, you believe that God indeed loves you, why don't you rejoice, pray, and give thanks all the time? Why do you complain? Why do you grumble? Why do you allow your discontentment to grow? Why do you hold on to your anger, to your bitterness, to your despair? Again, Paul here, he's not writing out of context. He's writing to Thessalonians who are grieving. He knows that. And, and, and he's encouraging them. He's saying, listen to what is good. Don't, don't just reject every good word that comes to you, but listen and hold fast to what is good. Discern whether it's true or not first, and then hold fast to what is good and abstain from what is evil. And oftentimes, what is evil tends to come from within us, doesn't it? It comes from the voices in our own hearts. The voices that tells you to doubt God, to complain. Voices that tells you that you have the right to be angry, that, that you deserve better. When we choose to center our mind around God's truth, it helps us safeguard, safeguard ourselves from sin, and it also enables us to pursue God. It's important for us to be able to discipline our minds and discern what indeed is true and what is not. And, 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 it, and when we do that, it impacts everything. Everything about our lives, from, our, from how we feel to what we do, to how we go about each day, to how we make decisions. Romans chapter 8, verse 6 says this, For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. What do you do then when you hear truths? When, when your brother and sisters in your own small group hold you accountable to something, when they rebuke you gently and lovingly want to push you to do good, to repent of your sin, how do you respond to those things? Do you choose to hold fast to what is true, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil? And so what we get here then in this passage is, is, is these instructions that tell us that we have the ability to live our lives for God. This is about us centering ourselves in the midst of a chaotic, sinful world to keep us grounded in Christ. And we are able to do this because of the power of the Spirit that dwells in us. We must center our hearts according to will of God, to posture our hearts, submitting our lives willingly to God himself, knowing that God's will is our ultimate satisfaction. We must center our minds around the truth of God, knowing that his word given to us is his very voice speaking to us, guiding us, shepherding us through the valleys and the hills. In other words, all these commands are, are ways we obey, but they're also for our sanctification. They're a way for us to grow in holiness. As, as Jesus prays in John chapter 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And we are called to obey God's word. So, and, and, and let's just, let us remember, guys, then these instructions given here and given in all the epistles, they're given to the church. Meaning we are people, God's people, bought by the blood of Christ. We don't obey these commands to be saved. We obey these commands because we are saved. Jesus' righteousness has become ours. We obey because we are free from sin, slaves to righteousness. That's who we are. And so then at the end of the day, it is Christ. It is Christ who centers 
our minds and our hearts around. It is Christ who enables us to be able to posture our hearts before God. It is Christ who enables us to focus our minds upon the truths of God. Christ is everything. He is our pride and our joy. He is the one who helps us be able to obey these commands. And so I encourage you guys to think through these eight commands that's listed here and to, and to think through these categories and encourage you that you guys in Christ have the ability to indeed rejoice, to give thanks, to be able to test everything. We have the word of God in our very hands. And I, I want to give, I want to, before we end, I want to give some personal application for myself, even how I try to think about this world especially during this time, during COVID-19, and, and how, how these commands here, how, how they play out even in my own life. For instance, when we think about COVID-19, it's, it's a time when we are indeed just, we're, we're coming face to face with a lot of stuff. Uh, whether it's personally, whether it's stuff we're dealing with other people, whether it's even as we observe the greater society around us. And in a time when fear drives, seems to drive everything and seems to be in the driver's seat and people are being controlled by it, how then do we indeed rejoice? How then do we give thanks? How do we pray? How do we test all that we hear to know what indeed is true and what is not? And all of this comes first of Really just having faith in God, like I mentioned in the beginning. This is this starts with having a faith in God, faith in the sovereign and good God. And, and that that helps us be able to discern a lot of things that are going on. But let me break this down to three categories. First, let me talk about people. During this time, as we are separated from our people, there we we get to now see people's hearts. What do they truly value? What, what do they, what exactly is going on in their hearts? And, and, and it's sad because I've, I've heard of people who have struggled a lot during this time, people who may have struggled with their own faith, may have fallen into depression because just things just aren't the way they're used to and it's hard to change. And, and, it's, and it's difficult. And I've seen other people, their, their hearts, their true intention, the way they really treat the church or the way they think about the church and they think about people, they think about work, like all that stuff kind of gets revealed during this time. And, and, and the way that I think about it to, to give thanks to God during this kind of circumstance is that it really provides shepherding opportunity for us as pastors. And it provides shepherding ministry, minister, ministry opportunities for you guys as well. And, and, and I give thanks for that. I give thanks to God that God has allowed trials to help us be able to shepherd people and, and truly get to their hearts. Not, not just talk to them at a surface level, but to really see what they're struggling with. And it helps me be able to pray for them. To know what to pray for, not just for their work or, for, or just to be able to read scripture more or pray more, but but really pray for what they're struggling with deep down. And, that, and to be able to give thanks to God during this kind of time allows me to remember the goodness of God. We rejoice in that. Or we think about the church. And during this time, the church, because we're all separated, we really are challenged to rethink the doctrine of the church, our ecclesiology. And, and, there, and that's... And as we think about, you know, ministries such as IT or think about your small groups and think about all these different things, we're, it's really a time where we can really refocus ourselves to think about what exactly is our very essentials, right? What, what is it that we need to keep? What is it that is actually keeping us back from really moving forward? It helps us think through all these things. And I'm thankful for that. I'm thankful for this time because sometimes when we get trapped with this program and we're going week by week and it's rapid and, and we, it seems like we don't ever have time to slow down, we can easily lose sight of what's necessary for the church. 
And the reason why we're still meeting online and hearing God's words, because we believe what's essential is the preaching of God's word. It's the worship of the corporate body. And we're keeping that central. We're keeping that the focus of what we do. And yes, it's nice that we can do a lot more activities to be able to build more fellowship. Uh, and I, I encourage us to try to do that. But we are able to now refocus ourselves a little bit to remember what exactly indeed is essential of the church. At the same time, as we're all separate, I, I do believe God is preparing the church. He's sovereignly preparing the church for future persecution. For future times when the church will come under trials. When our biggest enemy is not just the COVID-19 shutdown, but it might be even us facing government and the society around us. Facing what's being taught in our schools to our future generations. It gives us time to prepare ourselves for this future. To really think about our own faith and think, are we solidifying it? And when I think about all this and how God is preparing us for all these, all, for what may come, I'm thankful for God. I pray to God and, I, and I'm able then to even think through and discern, okay, what is it that's essential to our faith? What is it that we need to completely hold on to? What is it that we need to remember and hold on to what's good and what is indeed true? And lastly, to think about society around us. During this COVID-19 pandemic, we definitely are able to now see the agendas of this culture, political agendas. It's up front. It's in our face. You know, all these websites are telling us to vote. And, 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 and let, me, let me just get down practical a little bit here to even think about what does it mean to test everything, to think about what is indeed true and false, right? There's debates even amongst churches about how to think about this virus. Is it real or is it not? Is it a conspiracy or is it an actual real pandemic? And, and regardless of what, what exactly is true, what exactly are the facts, being in this time, Helps us be able to discern and see how people think. To see how churches think. To see how the secular world thinks. To see how conservatives think. How the liberals might think. It gives us time to not just talk about what is true and false in the realm of facts, but what is true and false in terms of their philosophy. In terms of how they interpret these facts. Is it what and it helps us to be able to discern everything. Are they indeed interpreting interpreting facts and handling these facts according to the word of God? And if they believe this thing, are they following God's word according to that belief? And, and it helps us discern and test exactly. You know, are they truly obeying God's word for all this? Is scripture being upheld? And as we think through society and we think about this, I, I'm thankful that these things come up front because if they're not up front for the church to realize right now, if indeed we face persecution in the future, further persecution, I don't think, I think it will hit us by surprise. But I think now the church is much more aware of what's going on and I'm thankful for that. And at the end of the day, I can always rejoice in God a sovereign God who is in control of all things, who loves his church and promises to us in Romans 8 that he, that nothing can ever separate us from his love. There is, there is so much that we can do for God and how we live in a time like this will say a lot about our faith. will say a lot about us as God's, as God's people. When we look at these commands here in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, I mean, we can easily breeze past them, but we take the time to think about what each of these commands may do for us if we were to apply them to our lives, especially now. It really enforces God's truth in our lives and helps us grow in our walks and reminds us, comforts us of the loving Father who cares for his church and, the, and Jesus Christ who died on the cross for our sins 
and was raised from the grave on the third day so that his bride, the church, may be sanctified, may be secure. And one day, one day that is guaranteed, we will indeed rejoice without any tears, any sorrows, a full joy. And we'll constantly be praising God in that final day. Let us continue to hold on to these truths and let us live up our lives in light of these truths. Let me go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for this time of your word that we were able to gather here tonight and really see just how wonderful your commandments are. Lord, we are indeed thankful. We are thankful for you, Lord, that you indeed have chosen to love wicked sinners like ourselves. You have chosen to give us your son. Lord, what a wonderful gift that is. Thank you, God, for for loving us. And so, Lord, let us then hold fast to you. Hold fast to your word to continue to discern, Lord, what indeed is true and what is not. And let us rejoice. Let us pray. Let us give thanks to you. And so, Lord, be with us as we continue to walk with you each day. Be with us as we go into our discussion groups. Let us encourage one another and point one another towards Christ. And I pray, Lord, most of all for the church. Now, Lord, as a church, we'll continue to stand strong upon your truth. We will remain faithful in all that we do. And I also pray, Lord, as a church, we will remember Remember to shepherd your people, to minister to them, to care for those who may indeed be struggling during this time, who may find it difficult to rejoice. I pray, Lord, the church will come alongside them. And that, Lord, we would be able to help point them to the ultimate eternal joy that is found in Christ, to remind them of just how much you still love them, even in the midst of their trials. So, Lord, I pray that we would just be that as a church, as a fellowship, as a body. Be with us during this time. Pray this in your name. Amen.